honor great actors, but we're also here to honor the actors who seem great, but actually really aren't. And of all the great actors here in Hollywood, one in particular has stood the test of time for her many uninspiring and overrated performances. <laughs> From, from her mediocre early work in The Deer Hunter and Out of Africa to her underwhelming performances in Kramer vs. Kramer and Sophie's Choice, Meryl Streep has phoned it in for more than 50 films over the course of her lackluster career. This is Meryl's 20th Oscar nomination. Even more, made even more amazing considering the fact that she wasn't even in a movie this year. We just wrote her name down out of habit. <laughs> Meryl, stand up if you would. Everybody, please join me in giving Meryl Streep a totally undeserved round of applause, will you? Hello and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast with the unmitigated temerity. To ask the question, is Meryl Streep really all that good? I'm Lee. And I'm Spro. No actor, living or dead, is more synonymous with the Academy Awards than Meryl Streep. As of 2022, she's received 21 Oscar nominations, more than any other actor, living or dead. She's won thrice, once for Best Supporting Actress and twice for Best Actress. If she wins once more, she'll tie Katherine Hepburn for the most Oscars ever won by any actor. And doesn't that just seem like something the Oscars are like want to do? It seems everywhere you turn in today's society, people are breaking records. And while, yes, like an athletics man, the people working out today are beasts compared to our heyday. So perhaps their regimens and rule changes to prevent injury and increase entertainment value are why records are being broken in sports. But in entertainment, kind of cool that Katherine Hepburn's record still lives on. Maybe the Wayne Gretzky of, of cinema. It is cool. Hepburn, <laughs> Hepburn forever. Anyway, in the past 40 plus years, Streep has made nearly 80 films, starred in three best pictures, and emerged as the greatest actor of her generation. Maybe one of the finest to ever grace the silver screen. Eh, not maybe, definitely. Suffice to say, the woman is a Hollywood institution. But on this show, nobody gets a free pass, not even the great and powerful Queen Meryl. <laughs> Do you remember the movie She-Devil? What? What's wrong? In your hair. Oh! <laughs> it's a gummy bear. So, tell me how much you love my new novel and how much money we're going to make. <laughs> uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> she was in that. <laughs> she sure was. Nobody, yeah, nobody in She-Devil should get a free pass. I mean, Roseanne Barr with a big, like, beauty mark mole thing on her face. There was also Ed Begley Jr., who you'll recognize him. Look him up. All that said, we have no wish to impugn upon Streep's legacy. What? I mean, humbly, somewhat, somewhat. I'm just, all I'm saying is that we falter from time to time mm -hmm. here on Spro and Lee. We get a bit petty, and our aim should largely be to direct criticism at the Academy's choices. So that's what we'll endeavor to do. So before anyone accuses us of disparaging one of the all-time greats, it should just be known that Spro and I are Streep supporters. Absolutely. It's just that sometimes the Academy has a tendency to nominate names and not performances, long-established names. Absolutely. Streep is part of Hollywood and Oscar royalty, but her name gets thrown into the nomination so much it's become a running joke to simply expect that whatever performance she lays down will be up for gold. Ugh, you are so crude. So crude. How dare you insult my beautiful friends. So with that in mind, Lee and I intend to go through each and every one of Streep's nominations and wins and determine whether or not they were deserved. That's the Streep effect. And and I, again, I just want to point out, Spro and I respect Streep's work. <laughs> this episode isn't born of any grudge against the woman. Or, or women in general. Sure. <laughs> why are you being so explanatory, though? I mean, why are you so preemptively know. nice? Damn it, Lee. I said at the end of season two, I wasn't going to be a jerk this season. But if you're not going to be a jerk on a podcast born of jerkdom, somebody's got to be the jerk. The floor is yours, jerk face. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, you've already like really laid it on thick that we believe that Meryl Streep is a great actress, but it doesn't make every one of her roles great or nomination worthy. And I feel that if we deep dive this, we will uncover some truly unremarkable, undeserved nominations. Okay, so how do we do this? It's going to be different for us since we're not going after anybody's award. We're going after their body of work and leave it to us to go after Um, somebody with quite an extensive body of work. We just start at the beginning, all the way back to the 1970s, her first nomination. And if we both agree with it, we move on to her second and third and then fourth until we get to one that one of us goes like, eh. And if we both go, eh, well, then we take that nomination away. We talk about other people that could have been nominated that year, subtract from her total, give the nomination to someone else, call it a day or an episode or whatever. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So this is gonna this is gonna take us a couple episodes to knock this one out. I think so. Whether we get to one or two this season, or we save like the next episode for next, we'll figure all that out depending on how this goes. We're going streeping. So then to start off this multi-season, multi-episode quickie series, we're going to go through all of Meryl's nominations in chronological order and stop to discuss when we think the Academy faltered. Yes. Yes. We both know there's one she's not deserving of. There has to be somewhere in here or we wouldn't even do this episode. But how many? Not even I know yet. How many are we going to agree on that she did not deserve? So let's go through them all, starting with the deer hunter and see what we got. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe we're setting up the audience for a, a nice little twist ending where this is just going to be a street love and she gets to keep all of her nominations. Yeah, maybe. All right. Is it time for the Oscar fun fact? Yes, please. Take it away, Spro, with an Oscar fun fact brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a salad bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Let's talk about the one actress Streep is chasing, Katherine Hepburn. I recently watched a movie with Katherine Hepburn returning to the screen after a 10-year hiatus. The Warren Beatty, Annette Bening, Robert Town penned film Love Affair. And one, I don't know how I watched movies without subtitles on back in the day. I must have missed so much because I'm so glad I did to see her on screen here with her subtle lines that just made me chuckle. Katherine Hepburn was nominated 12 times for 44 films, paling in comparison to Streep's 21 noms. But Streep has done almost double the number of films. Where Meryl has won thrice, Kate won quadruple. Her first nomination came for Morning Glory in 1934. Her last was for On Golden Pond in 1982. For 58 years, Katherine Hepburn's name was on the Academy's tongue. In the year 2000, Miss Hepburn was honored by the American Film Institute, who named her the number one female star of the classic Hollywood era. She has pretty much won every single American acting award there is, and even some international ones. But fun fact... Catherine Hepburn never went to the Oscars to collect, not for any four of them, to her and to quote her, prizes are nothing, my prize is my work, which I think I have said she said on the show before. Hepburn had, has, had, I guess, because she has passed, coincidentally, the same year Streep won her 13th nomination, breaking Hepburn's nomination record, Kate had appeared at the Oscars once to present a memorial Oscar to Lawrence Weingarten, who was a friend of hers and an MGM producer. Here's a clip of her only Oscar appearance being kind of tongue-in-cheek with her introduction. To, um, To conceal the identity of our next presenter has called for a security operation of truly 
royal proportions. And why not? Gertrude Stein might have said, a star is a star is a star. But to me, this is a star. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Catherine Hepburn. Thank you very, very much. I am naturally deeply moved. I'm also very happy that I didn't hear anyone call out, it's about time. <laughs> I am the living proof that a person can wait 41 years to be unselfish. As stated before, she won for Morning Glory for On Golden Pond, and then her other two wins came for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and The Lion in Winter. But my favorite Katherine Hepburn performance is in 1941's The Philadelphia Story. Hepburn stars with Cary Grant and James Stewart. The film is about a socialite whose wedding plans are complicated by the simultaneous arrival of her ex-husband and a tabloid magazine journalist. She is ever the classic actress you would want to grace your screen. So if ever you want to see one Katherine Hepburn film, make it that one, The Philadelphia Story, currently on HBO Max. And then you could see how well she commands the screen and not necessarily in that old-fashioned, beautiful way that producers were looking for from a woman. She is strong. Yeah. She is angular. Like, she is... She wasn't a sex pot. There you go. Perfect. Like, she wasn't... I'm thinking Marilyn Monroe, but even before Marilyn Monroe, who did, like, Marilyn Monroe kind of cop her look off of? Jean Harlow? You know, like, she wasn't, like, one of those. Stop that music. I'm terribly sorry to have kept you waiting, but there's been a slight hitch in the proceedings. I've made a terrible fool of myself, which isn't unusual. And my fiancé, uh, my fiancé that was, that is, he thinks we'd better call it a day. And I quite agree with him. Peace is wonderful. Uh, uh, Dexter, Dexter, what next? Three years ago, I did you out of a wedding in this house by eloping to Maryland. Two years ago, uh, you were invited Nadia, to a wedding just in this alone. house. Yeah, put the swing in the best pocket. Don't have a bad Then hold in your hand. Uh, Which was very bad manners. Which was very bad manners. But I hope to make it up to you by going through with it now as originally planned. But I hope to make it up to you by... By going beautifully through with it now. As originally and most beautifully planned. So if you just keep your seats for a minute. So if you'll just keep your seats a minute. That's all. Um, that's all. Text, are you sure? Not the least problem, risky, will you? You bet. You didn't do it just to soften the blow. No, Tracy. Not to save my face. Oh, it's a nice little face. Oh, Dext, I'll be ya now. I'll promise to be ya. Be whatever you like. You're my redhead. Are you all set? All set. Best man? Honored, CK. Maid of honor? Matron of honor. Remember Joe Smith. Oh, how did this ever happen? But if we can bounce around eras, I want to give a special shout out now to Martin Scorsese and Ellen Lewis, who I think casted their Catherine Hepburn in the film The Aviator perfectly with who I think is the second coming of Catherine Hepburn, which is Kate Blanchett, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress playing Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator. Follow through is everything in golf, just like life. <laughs> Don't you mind? <laughs> Saw your Scarface picture. Violent. Realistic. Movies are movies, Howard, not life. Now the stage. The stage is real. Real flesh and blood human beings right out there in front of you, buster. Can't look away, can't munch popcorn. That would be rude. Do you like the theater? No. Oh, I adore the theater. Only alive on stage. I'll teach you. We'll see some Ibsen. If the Republicans have an outlaw him by now. <laughs> You're not a Republican, are you? Couldn't abide that. How did you vote in 32? Well, I didn't. You must. It's your sacred franchise. <laughs> that win was one of two for Kate Blanchett. The other one was for Blue Jasmine. Kate Blanchett, it should be noted, has been nominated seven times. So if we had to make a Rushmore of Academy Award actresses, 
I think, and and Lee, disagree if you want, I think it would go to Catherine Hepburn in the Washington spot, Meryl Streep in the Lincoln, Kate Blanchett in the Jefferson. And I'm struggling with the fourth spot, but I'm pretty sure I put Francis McDormand probably there. I think those four are good. Even seeing Blanchett in like Nightmare Alley, I was like, thank God Kate Blanchett exists. Yes. <laughs> yes. She is so fun to watch on screen. And I will, a little peek behind my thought patterns, I waffled between Francis McDormand and Jodie Foster. Mm. Do love me some Jodie. Me five. So anyway, Catherine Hepburn is the queen of the Academy Awards actresses. If we're going to go after Princess Streep, we must give our respect. We must genuflect to the woman who couldn't give a shit whether we praised her or not. And now eviscerate the career of Meryl. Eviscerate. <laughs> Man, you got some demons in you, sir. I just, I like to use big words when I can remember them. <laughs> I think of like Jack the Ripper or something when I hear that word. <laughs> For my part, it's less about eviscerating her career and more about tearing the ass out of the Academy's propensity for nominating her and some other folks too, quite honestly. <laughs> Wait, I mean, tearing the ass? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I have demons because of eviscerating, but you want to tear the ass. <laughs> Yes, but the difference here is you're eviscerating a person. I'm tearing the ass out of an organization. So it's sort of disembodied. Oh, uh, see, I, I envision a crowd of people. Like you're just going to tear the ass out of all the audience members. <laughs> so um, I was eviscerating one person and you were tearing the assholes out of everybody sitting in the chairs. <laughs> It, it is interesting, though, because I think we could do this for, I mean, the reason that we're doing the Streep effect is because she has the most nominations. But it, whoever this person would be in an alternate universe, whether it be, I don't know, George Clooney or, I mean, Laurence Olivier, I think, is second most nominations of all time, something like 16 or 15, something like that. I'm not listening of the audience who does not like the older films, just went, yeah, oh, please, I was, God. No. <laughs> I was just going to say, not of the modern era, not of the modern era. But anyway, you know, when we keep getting these same people's names popping up. Yeah, it's certainly merited sometimes. Other times it's not, which means that if you're a talented up and coming actor, you better get yourself into the MCU, score a meaty TV role or find yourself a social media base because the likelihood of A, getting nominated and B, actually winning, the stars have to align. Anyway, on to street. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I... When they called my name, I had this feeling I could hear half of America going, oh, no. Oh, come on, why her again, you know? But whatever. And the first movie that we get to talk about, which is The Deer Hunter, for which she mm -hmm. was nominated for Best Supporting Actress of 1979. I hadn't seen this for a long time, and I was able to secure a Blu-ray copy for my rewatch. And my God, is it well shot. Such beautiful framing and sumptuous long takes. I, I really tried multitasking while this was on, but I, I couldn't do it. It demanded my complete attention. Deer Hunter is quite a time capsule. You've got Walken, you've got De Niro, the late John Cazale, and Meryl Streep, who was 27 when filming began. As young as I've ever seen her on film. Not her first film, I think her second. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that Streep is really the only one from her generation who's still floating a career. She's made some mistakes, but honestly, ever since 78, she's been working steadily with big name directors making popular films. You can't really say the same for Nicholson or Hoffman, De Niro or Walken and lots of others. Baby Kurt Russell would be one of the only other baby boomer actors that can boast such a streak. Bullock is technically a boomer too, but only just barely. Anyway, Streak plays Linda a friend and unrealized girlfriend of both Nick and Michael, Walken and De Niro, respectively. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. De Niro and Walken were also nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor, respectively. But of the three, only Walken went home with the gold. The Deer Hunter won a total of five Oscars, including Best Director for Michael Cimino and Best Picture of 1979. Streep is quite good playing this woman who's caught between two men, only one of whom she loves romantically. She also suffers abuse at the hands of her alcoholic father, but this story point's only briefly dealt with in the first act before being abandoned. Nonetheless, Streep is wonderful, vulnerable, fragile, lost, and struggling through what should be the best years of her lives were it not for the Vietnam War. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can't deny it. I did look it up. This is her third film. She did oh, okay. a TV movie and then a film called Julia, where she played Anne Marie. But yeah, so, but this is probably the first time anybody's really seen her on screen. I really like seeing her share the screen with John Cazale, who died tragically young from cancer. Only the director, Michael Cimino, knew he was sick and all of his scenes were shot first. Cazale and Merrill met in a 1976 Shakespeare production of Measure for Measure when the studio found out John was sick. Legend has it the studio wanted him cut from the film. Why? I don't know. Doesn't sound human to me. Insurance reasons? Uh, Who knows? Meryl Streep threatened to quit if he was fired. Which nowadays you're like, Meryl Streep throwing around her power. No. This was her first starring role in a theatrically released film. Regardless of how hard we go in on her in this quickie series, let it be known when the heartless studio was wronging someone she liked, she put herself on the line to defend him. And golly, I I can't say enough nice things about that. I mean, that could have been a career ender right then and there. Good for her. John Cazale died shortly after the film wrapped, leaving behind a movie career that consisted of The Godfather Part 1 and 2, The Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. That's got to be the most 100% movie career of anybody with five titles to their name. Wouldn't you agree? Might be a necessary hindsight Oscar to award. Totally. It's a pretty unassailable filmography, no doubt. What do you think is Cazale's best? Probably Dog Day Afternoon. I mean- Really? It's. I think it's got to be Godfather 2. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one that like you would immediately- I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think of, of Streep here? Worthy of the nomination or did somebody else deserve uh, it? No, fuck no. I would never touch this one. Take the instance when Meryl is dancing with De Niro and loving it and he breaks off to get a beer and she is so out of place. And I think a couple even bumps into her, which I can't tell if it's planned or not. You can't tell if it's planned or not. And then he comes back for her, but he drags her so quickly to the bar. It's like he throws her into it and she's giggling, but stopping herself and saying, let loose, but she's clenched. There is so much acting and so much like she's like playing double beats in acting class and whatnot. The actors will break down their lines almost like every sentences two beats where they're like I'm going to play this emotion I'm going to play this emotion Meryl is almost like putting two emotions to every beat no for that reason I would not touch this one this is like almost an acting clinic that you're getting from Meryl Streep right off rip the deer hunter is a classic this is one I would rush out to the theaters to see again if they re-released it okay well Meryl's <laughs> next nomination came only one year later in Kramer versus Kramer for which she was nominated for best supporting actress of 1980 this is Kramer Can you tell the court why you are asking for custody? Because he's my child. And because I love him. I know I left my son. I know that that's a terrible thing to do. Believe me, I have to live with that every day of my life. But in order to leave him, I had to believe that it was the only thing I could do. And that it was the best thing for him. I was incapable of functioning in that home. And I didn't know what the alternative was going to be. So I thought it was not best that I take him with me. However, I've since gotten some help. And I have worked very, very hard to become a whole human being. And I don't think I should be punished for that. And I don't think my little boy should be punished. Billy's only seven years old. He needs me. I'm not saying he doesn't need his father, but I really believe he needs me more. I was his mommy for five and a half years. And Ted, took over that role for 18 months. But I don't know how anybody can possibly believe that I have less of a stake in mothering that little boy than Mr. Kramer does. I'm his mother. I'm his mother. 
Apocalypse Now was screwed by Kramer versus Kramer winning Best Picture that year, but nobody held a candle to Meryl Streep this year. So, like, I feel like we d- we don't have to talk too much about Kramer versus Kramer. I feel like we talked up Streep's performance in KVK and what she had to endure with Dustin Hoffman, allegedly whispering about the recently departed John Cazale in her ear to get her emotional during scenes and even slapping her. If you haven't seen this film yet, audience, even though we recommended to see it and you should always take our recommendations, you kind of forget how little she's in it because when she's in it, she commands the screen. It's also funny to me to think about how much hate the lost daughter got for the very thing Meryl Streep does in this picture. I mean, she abandons her kid. 40 years later, it's a topic you still can't really talk about in Hollywood. Sorry, moms, you have to be perfect caretakers. Us men can fall back on the stereotypical deadbeats. Yeah, it's dead right. Mothers are a staple of American cinema, but typically portrayed as these loving, compassionate, protective, infallible angels. Yes, it's true. Joanna Kramer chooses herself over her husband and her son, which makes this role a bit of an outlier, but her character doesn't get a whole lot of depth. Imagine if this film had given more than just a vague notion of why she needed to uproot her life. Imagine if we followed her story alongside Hoffman's instead of her just popping up again like a ghost from the past. It would have been such a different film. But a lack of depth notwithstanding, Streep gives an absolutely bottomless performance. Joanna comes across as so trustworthy, and I don't mean I trust the character per se. I mean, I can't help but feel the earnestness in every single thing that Streep does and says on camera as Joanna. She's so immersed in character that her performance elicits real trust and genuine empathy. It's obvious that she knew this character, understood her, you know, was equipped to communicate this story. At the time, Streep had shown up in two major Hollywood releases, The Deer Hunter and the previously mentioned Manhattan. Her stock was rising, but the popularity of this film exposed her to the wide, wide world. And it was undeniable that Meryl Streep was a truly talented artist whose best was yet to come. What's next on the list? The French Lieutenant's Woman. She was nominated for Best Actress of 1982. It has been recognized as a masterpiece of modern literature. It has given the world a woman and a love story so mysterious and unique. Only an actress of the most special talents could portray them on the screen. Meryl Streep in The French Lieutenant's Woman. I knew it was ordained that I should never marry an equal, so I married Shane. I am the French Lieutenant's. One woman in two love stories. I must see you. That would be very difficult. One before the cameras. I gave myself to him. One behind the scenes. You know what I say in the graveyard scene about going to London? If I went to London, I know what I should become. I should become what some already call me. One in a world where freedom is forbidden. You are a cunning, wicked creature. May I know of what I am accused? One in a world without rules. I want you so much. He just had me. My only happiness is when I sleep. When I wake, the nightmare begins. Her torture had become her delight. I do not fear. Do you wish to hear her? Do you wish to see her? I cannot. I cannot. Do you wish to touch her? Street, Jeremy Irons, in a Carol Rice film, written for the screen by Harold Pinter, based on the novel by John Fowles, The French Lieutenant's Woman. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So what did you think of this film? Uh, despite the praise that this movie received 40 years ago, I've never heard anyone talk about it, like ever. Have you? <laughs> no, no, none, not at all. I can normally get behind some melodramatic bullshit, but I really struggled to connect with this one. I mean, I'll admit the presentation is often beautiful to behold, and the more I've thought about the script, the more I I appreciate the way the playwright Harold Pinter adapted this Victorian-era novel published in 1969 by, instead of going straight novel to film adaptation, he added a contemporary meta-narrative wherein the two actors are portraying the two leads on set and then having an affair over the course of shooting the film. It's it's interesting, and the approach is laudable. 
simple, but the execution makes watching the film disorienting and not in like a, wow, this movie has layers and I want to peel them back kind of way. (laughs) I was as confused as well. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? That the different time periods were kind of confusing, especially like when they're dressed like one in the other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. But because even the beginning when it's in one period and then there's a perception shift that they're on set, which is kind of similar set wise, but in reverse at the end, the whole film was bumping me out to try and figure out where we were in the story. And maybe I'm dumb. I am blonde. I mean, but it was it was hard to be intrigued for me with this film. I think one thing we have gotten better about nowadays is using coloring on film to distinguish time periods. The first time I noticed this was, I think, in traffic when one timeline was mainly oranges and another blues. This film could certainly have benefited from something like that just for an audience goer like me. The movie's probably better than we're giving it credit for. I also don't think I'm smart enough to appreciate it after only one viewing since so many other people saw a masterpiece when we didn't. But if it was a masterpiece, people would still be talking about it, no? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I usually just assume that if Criterion recognizes a movie that it was lauded somewhere by someone at some time. (laughs) Ultimately, I didn't find Streep's performance here super praiseworthy, as Ebert and so many other critics suggested back when newspapers were regularly bought and read. She's fine, but that's as far as I'll go. I don't think it's deserving an Academy Award nomination. So... Are we attacking this one? Looks like it. All right, sweet. So before we do, I was thinking about this. In the act of trying to be more positive this year, right before we take this nomination away, what is it about Street do you think she excels at? Before we attack this nomination, let's praise her a little bit. For me, it's her subtlety. As we go on with this Streep effect for years and years and seasons and seasons, I can almost predict myself going after her roles where she's louder, where she's more bombastic. I forget if she was nominated for Into the Woods and we'll get there or not, but things like that. As I said in The Deer Hunter or her sitting at the table in KVK, her ability to make you lean forward in your seat as she whispers is what I find so damn charming about her. There's a scene in this where she's laying in bed in the morning reading. That was my favorite part of this multi-year timeline of a film. All the Shipshaw, hullabaloo, elsewise, whatever. And I know Shipshaw isn't even a word. It's a town or something, but I like the context it brings. What What do you like about Street? She rarely feels like she's acting. I think the first time I was made aware of this woman, Meryl Streep, was Defending Your Life. Defending Your Life was a movie that I probably watched... God, 30 times. That might even be underselling it. And you know, I've never seen it. Oh, it's it's very good. And I think from that movie, my impression of her has always been that her delivery just feels so natural, so real. And that maybe that might be the same thing that you're saying. Same thing as subtlety. She can reach these emotional zeniths without screaming or Matt Damon sobbing. There's a reason that it took me a really long time to come around on Leonardo DiCaprio, and I'm still not 100% sold on him. He just, he's got one note and it's freak out. (laughs) I, I just don't. She's good at communicating with her whole body. She acts with her face, with her eyes. She uses her her neck and her limbs, and it all feels natural to who she's portraying. So how did all the awards shake down this year? Who won? To celebrate with you all the five extraordinary women representing the wonderful work accomplished in this category over the past year. The category is, of course, Best Actress in a Leading Role. And the nominees are Katherine Hepburn for On Golden Pond. <laughs> Diane Keaton for Red. Marsha Mason, for only when I laugh. Susan Sarandon, for Atlantic City. Meryl Streep, for the Friends Retained Women. And the Oscar this year for Best Actress. So in this year, Streep would go on to lose Best Actress to the woman we previously mentioned. The winner is Catherine Hepburn, Hepburn for On Golden Pond. She was nominated with some power hitters, Diane Keaton for Reds, Susan Sarandon for Atlantic City. And I don't know Marsha Mason, or I didn't know Marsha Mason. I reminded myself who Marsha Mason was. But Marsha Mason was in a film called Only When I Laugh, which 
is a weird title. It's a Neil Simon piece. Marshall Mason aside, Only When I Laugh has Christy McNichol in it. Do you remember Christy McNichol? I know her face, but I never watched anything that she was in, including what you knew her from. (laughs) (laughs) So, What were you doing watching Empty Nest when you were like 11 years old? (laughs) I don't, well, I was the youngest, right? Like I was the youngest in the household. So Empty Nest was on and stuff like that. Like I like her. I knew her from Empty Nest. Even looking at her picture now, like she just represents the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, she does. And that like the teenager from the 80s, like the other one was, what was her face from Charles in Charge? Nicole Eggert. Yeah. Like that face and that hair and everything like that when you're like a preteen, 12-year-old boy and like that's the 16 to 18-year-old girls on your screen and you're like, oh, I have a crush, you know. It's like having a crush on your sister's friends. Nostalgia. (laughs) So now this is where uh, this episode is different because we are not taking an Oscar away, but rather a nomination. We are saying Meryl Streep shouldn't have 21 nominations. She should have one less. And this one should have gone to someone more deserving. They say it's an honor just to be nominated. And someone was robbed of that honor because of the Academy's Streep-covered lenses. So where should we start? We don't have to talk about anyone that got the nomination already. Like I said, Hepburn, Sarandon, Mason, and or Keating. Golden Globes, we could talk about Meryl Streep actually won the Golden Globe and the BAFTA for her role in this film. Wow, that's surprising that she then lost the Oscar. I wonder how often that actually happens. I wonder how surprised she was in the audience. You know, usually when you're making a run like that, you just clean up. Yep. But then again, when you're up against Catherine Hepburn, I don't think if they call her name, you can't be that surprised. You're like, yep, she's the queen. The Golden Globes also nominated Sally Field for Absence of Malice and Sissy Spacek for Raggedy Man. I like these older episodes because it allows us to go back and revisit the greats of yore like Field and Spacek. Did you see either of these movies? I have not seen Raggedy Man, other than the clip that you sent me. But as a young man, I sought out Absence of Malice just because it had Paul Newman in it. And I still think Wilford Brimley coming in at the end to mitigate is the standout performance here. And it's not Field or my boy Newman. Absolutely agree. As we watch these films, and if the role is just like an actress playing a part, which it seemed to be here, like this was like Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich to me. And I know Julia Roberts won for Aaron Brockovich, so we might Mm. have to talk about that later. But I was like, what had people talking about Sally Field here? other than the fact that Sally Field is so damn charming. Gallagher, I'm a reporter. What'd you expect? Don't try to make me feel guilty. Do you really think I had something to do with Diaz, huh? It's a distinct possibility. If there's nothing there, then why are they picking on you? I gotta know where that story came from. Knowledgeable sources, you said. Now, who is that? Somebody's trying to get to me. Somebody with no face and no name. You're the gopher. You listen to them, you write what they say, and then you help them hide. You say you got a right to do that. And I got no right to know who they are. I'm sorry, Gallagher. I can't help you. How old are you? 34. How come you're not married? Maybe I am. How come you don't wear a ring? Haven't you ever heard of liberation? Most of them are ugly. Is that supposed to be a compliment? Look, Gallagher, if they clear you, I'll write about that too. What page? See, you say somebody's guilty, everybody believes you. You say he's innocent, nobody cares. That's not the paper's fault, it's people. People believe whatever they want to believe. Who puts out the paper? Nobody. Well, if you knew I was going to write about you, then why did you do all of this? I want publicity, huh? No, really. I mean, why the boat, the picnic, and everything? I didn't want you jumping up and running out of a restaurant before I got some answers. Did you get any? Not the ones I wanted, but some. It's got to be the almost rape scene, yeah? Your boy Paul Newman was a tough hang at times in this film. You should see HUD if you want to see Newman in rare and rapey form. I'm sure I'll come to it eventually. Anyway, I watched Raggedy Man for this episode. I paid $4 to rent it from Amazon Prime. You could watch it for free on YouTube if you're so inclined. <laughs> I, the small mini rants to the side. I can't stand the fact that I'm paying $4 to rent 
a digital copy of a film nobody has probably rented this year yet. I could go to the Redbox and rent the new Spider-Man No Way Home for $2, or I'm renting this 1981 Forgotten Piece for $4 from Amazon Prime. Like, the prices nowadays, I don't know. So I watched Pennies from Heaven, which is set in the 30s, and Raggy Man, which is set in the 40s. I'm definitely nostalgic for a period of time I have never known. Sissy Spacek plays a phone board operator who has two kids with an absentee father. She's a divorcee. So when Eric Roberts, a sailor on Liberty, comes around and is nice to the boys, she gives him a roof to stay under for a couple days. This was a fun watch, and she does well, but if we're talking Oscar-nominated over Merrill, I can go either way. It's actually interesting because the third act of the film is very, like the first act, first two acts is very like Southern charm and like pranksters and everything like that. The third act is a straight horror film. It just completely changes its vibe in the third act. The music, which we'll get into with the next film, Pennies from Heaven, there's a scene, right, of Sissy Spacek sweeping her room, singing along to the Andrews sisters, singing Rum and Coca-Cola. And I, I can't explain it, but Born in 1982, you know, like I'm 40 years old. I listen to hip hop and everything like that. For whatever reason, those scenes speak to me. And I kind of just have to drop everything I'm doing and just watch somebody <laughs> singing pretty, along to the 1940s. It was pretty cute and charming. Yeah, right? So this brings me to who won the Golden Globe for comedy musical this year, which was Bernadette Peters winning for Pennies from Heaven. Pennies from Heaven is Steve Martin's first dramatic role, and it was a box office flip. I really liked how Steve Martin responded, though. He said, I'm disappointed that it didn't open as a blockbuster, and I don't know what's to blame, other than it's me, and it's not a comedy. I must say that the people who get the movie, in general, have been wise and intelligent. The people who don't get it are ignorant scum. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most Steve Martin thing ever. (laughs) The movie is an interesting watch. It's a musical for, really, I could say, like, the TikTok generation, because nobody sings in it. They simply lip sync to 1930s tunes and the world breaks out in imaginative musical numbers. The best one, I believe, is Bernadette Peters, a grade school teacher, singing Love is Good for Anything That Ails You in the middle of class and all of her little students suddenly donning white suits and playing a classroom full of baby grands and other instruments. Quiet! Anything that ails you Baby, there is nothing love can't do Love is good for anything that ails you How's about a sweet romance or two? Pennies from Heaven is MGM's last musical. It's a fine movie and Bernadette Peters is fine. But for me, Joan Harper steals the show. She plays Steve Martin's wife, who he leaves for Peters. But it's a minimal role, so she could only up, be up for supporting actress nuts. And thusly, I think we can move on. So MGM ha- hasn't made a musical since Pennies from Heaven? So actually, thank you for checking on this. If I look at IMDb, Pennies from Heaven is 1981. Mm-hmm. The next MGM musical is Victor Victor. Victoria, 1982. Mm-hmm. Yes, Giorgio in 1982. That's Dancing, 1985. And That's Entertainment 3 in 1994, which is a documentary. So yeah. there have been a couple. I don't know necessarily why my research brought up the fact that this was the last one. There's probably some like, like we were talking about earlier in the episode with like, people are breaking very specific records. It's probably something like that. Like, well, it's technically not a musical release because Victor Victoria was a play before, you know, like some bullshit like that. Well, (laughs) I watched a movie called Continental Divide, which stars John Belushi and Blair Brown. She lives where the air is thin. She's an expert in her field. Her work means everything to her. That's a bald eagle you're shooting at, and the American government takes it very personally. She lives alone, and she likes it that way. She's into oxygen. Today. He's into nicotine. Every day, for 13 years, some smart Alex are trying to tell me to quit. And actually, they were both very happy until they met. Out! This porter, I'll die out there. 
Life is full of little trade-offs. She found him annoying. He found her aloof. It's nature's way. She found herself losing her privacy. He found himself losing his nerve. I'll be going now. See you later. Take what you like and lock up when you leave, okay? And in the end, she found herself saving him anyway. But that's life on the Continental Divide. Blair Brown, the female lead, was up for Best Actress in a Drama at the Globes this year. I, I might be splitting hairs, but I don't care. I disagree with categorizing Brown's role here as drama when the movie is predominantly a comedy with only a dash or two of drama thrown in and a dash or two doth not a drama make. But anyway, Brown plays a reclusive environmentalist living alone in a cabin high in the Rocky Mountains where she studies and protects American bald eagles. Gotta give it to writer Lawrence Kasdan for Trojan horsing this tree-huggy ideology into a story while also also appealing to American pride with the whole eagle angle. Well done. In fact, one of the producers on this film, a dude named Spielberg, tapped Kasdan to write Raiders based on the strength of this script. Anyway, Brown is feisty, she's cute, she's well-spoken, but she's all of these things because of Kasdan's script. Brown's good, but I imagine a more gifted actress could have really taken the performance to another level. So then there was Carol Burnett in The Four Seasons, Jill Clayburg for First Monday in October, and Liza Minnelli for Arthur, which all were in the comedy genre. I couldn't find The Four Seasons or First Monday in October. And really, I must say, we are doing our due diligence looking. (laughs) We got this nice little spreadsheet that we got going on between Lee and I, where we are combing the catacombs for all of these films. And sometimes you just strike dead ends. Liza Minnelli for Arthur is... If someone wanted to make a case that in 1981 there was minimal roles for women, I absolutely would have a piss-weak argument against them. You can kind of see why Meryl got the nom. If these were the roles, it seemed like, oh, Liza did something? Well, we can just nominate her. Or, oh, Sissy played a shunned divorced mom? Sure. Or, you see Sally Field in that Newman flick? Give her something, will you? These roles don't have much flavor to them at all. There was no meat to these roles. Do you agree? Yeah, I think Arthur is Dudley Moore's show. Did you see the remake with Russell Brand? Fuck no. Who was the woman in that one? Exactly. It's the one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just somebody to like play off of, really. So, BAFTAs are on a kind of different timeline. Meryl beat out Mary Tyler Moore from Ordinary People for this award, which is weird. It's almost like a multiverse type thing. (laughs) And Catherine Hepburn would win for On Golden Pond the following year. But there is a nom in 1983 for the 81 film, 36 Chowering Lane for Jennifer Kendall and Maggie Smith for Quartet. I can chime in here. I watched Quartet. We're on season three of this show. Of all of the movies that I have watched and written about and spoken about, (laughs) this is by far the worst. It took me, it took me three, like, I don't fall asleep during movies. If I'm not, if I'm not interested, I'll turn it off and come back to it later. I fell asleep three times during this movie. It is, it's an incomprehensible mess. And Maggie Smith is only okay. That's all that needs to be said. It's, it's uh, Don't ever watch this movie. <laughs> Anyone, anywhere. Streaming for free, probably at your local library. Uh, no, I fucking, really- I had to pay for it. I had to fucking pay for it. I couldn't get it from the library. How much was it? It's three ninety nine. Jesus Christ. I don't know. It's a movie that no one ever has it's talked about in my life. And that was an absolute train wreck. And really, same for like 36 Chowring Lee Lane, which you found on YouTube. I tried to watch it, but I don't know if it's the bootlegged sound quality or just what it was, but there was, was definitely really like- Bad quality. A, <laughs> I know. It was a strangled cat feeling to the sound mix. So, the dub was so bad, it was hard to see through the quality for the performance. It hurts to say, but- That's going to be an issue. Yeah. Well, I think there are some historical reasons why I didn't hear my horse mentioned in all that hoopla. I think... Wait, hold on. No. (laughs) Because I feel like you're just going to come out and say it. And this is like... I I feel like we didn't crescendo the pick for this episode enough for this quickie. So I'm going to cut in here. I don't want to just plop it on the table. I think you need to build up to it. Dear listener, another film came out in 1981 with a performance that maybe our 20 and up crowd knows, but for sure our 30 and up crowd has heard about it and 40 and up will remember. So 
Lee, backstory on the film, and then maybe our audience can figure it out right before we announce who our winner of the nomination is. So for those of you who don't know, there was a major female star during Hollywood's golden age who starred alongside people like Clark Gable, the Barrymores, Wallace Beery, and was even married at one point to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Her career was a rocky road during which she feuded openly with Betty Davis and struggled mightily to stay relevant and in the limelight. And her name was Joan Crawford. Somewhere along the way, she adopted two children, Christina and Christopher. And after Crawford passed away in 1977, her daughter Christine wrote a scathing memoir that depicted her late mother as an unstable alcoholic and abusive narcissist. That memoir was optioned and became the motion picture Mommy Dearest. I think Faye Dunaway deserves the nomination for her performance as the monstrous Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. This film <laughs> has been criticized as exploitative, and rightly so. Moreover, the validity of some of the claims has been both disputed and supported by a variety of Crawford's relations and contemporaries, and the film was dismissed by audiences and, and critics as corny or crude, but I don't think Dunaway was ever better. It's a rare day when Pauline Kael's elevated opinion jives with mine, but of Dunaway's performance, Kale said that she takes this star machine Joan Crawford and shows you that she isn't evil or inhuman, she's frighteningly human. Even 40 years ago, parts of the films were described as ludicrous, but to those criticisms, Kale responded thusly, Dunaway invests the part with so much power and suffering that these scenes transcend camp. Nevertheless, Ms. Dunaway credited Mommy Dearest with partially ruining her career, and it was a while before she opened up to talk about it. She's expressed regret with taking the role, believing that the vision for the film was a respectable but honest, quote, window into a tortured soul, and was understandably disappointed when she saw the final cut. Dunaway also said that the film took an emotional toll on her, more or less, stating she felt she was being haunted by Crawford's ghost. Yeah. Anyway, all this aside, she's absolutely towering in the movie. Is she over the top? Sure, but it works. This performance is iconic. Regardless of the behind the scenes bullshit, Dunaway plays horrible and human. And even though we despise her, we do so to our detriment, never really knowing the extent of damage she endured throughout her life and career. We're ready for you, Miss Crawford. <laughs> to a truly great lady, Miss Joan Crawford. You know what's missing in my life? Come on, you've got everything you want. No, I don't. I want a baby. Out of the question. Don't you dare judge me. We have a moral and legal responsibility. And what you're really doing is denying one of your children the opportunity to live a wonderful and advantaged life. You're a lucky little girl. And very expensive. Trust me, a lot of favors. Christina, darling, I'm going to make a perfect life for you. Are you having a happy birthday, Christina, darling? This is the best party I ever had. I love you, Mommy dearest. I love you, Tina, darling. You lost again. It's not fair. You're bigger than I am. Ah, but nobody ever said that life was fair, Tina. I will always beat you. And I'm not going to play with you anymore. Ever. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to march yourself upstairs to your room and we'll stay there. you in your whole career or giving you one piece of bad advice your treatment of me has been divine good i want you to leave metro my wonderful friends leave metro your pictures one after another are losing money you've made me a star theater owners voted you box office poison making fun of me You're nothing but a rotten, crooked lawyer. The biggest female star he's got. Look at this floor. Do you think it's clean? Look at this floor. You and me together. Screw up.
I agree with everything you said. It's a hard pick. And when we get to make based solely off hindsight, but you touched on the points about how controversial the role was. I'm sure that Joan Crawford had some friends in the game who were still alive, who had never had let the nomination slide, should it have even been up for conversation. But when we're looking back on 1982 today, and you and I are looking through all these roles of quartet and raggedy man and absence of malice. And other than Catherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond, this film, this role is the only one that I would tell our audience to go back and check out. No question. You're going to get a lot more out of Mommy Dearest than you're going to get from Meryl Streep's performance in The French Lieutenant's Woman. And far be it from me, someone who is absolutely overcritical and overprotective of people and their biopics, this could absolutely be the case of a jilted child throwing mud at their deceased parents because they were cut from the will. But there were parts of this performance that just ring true. And the weird thing, I think I was retroactively trying to diagnose her (laughs) with things that we know more about nowadays, you know? The performance is interesting. Faye thinks the director could have reeled her back some after she saw the cut, but crazy is crazy. And I know you shouldn't call crazy people crazy, but some crazy people are crazy. We're so used to seeing reeled back crazy in cinema. I mean, how many disassociative disorders in cinema is like Edward Norton clapping in a jail cell or James McAvoy giggling in a chair or Tyler Durden laughing? Joan Crawford, as portrayed in Mommy Dearest, is certifiably OCD and probably some type of personality disorder. She's fucking off the rails. Faye Dunaway is unreserved and she is scared. Gary, I remember seeing this movie in the drama section and the horror section at the local blockbuster. That's how good this performance is. It's sad and it's scary. It's realistic. It's something you will see on the streets of LA any day you walk to the 7-Eleven, but it's also something you've never seen before. I'm not saying it should have won the Oscar. I'm fine with Hepburn for On Golden Pond. I don't know if I'll ever be old enough to appreciate that (laughs) film, but I recognize Hepburn's role as strong enough to win, but you gotta pop up Faye Dunaway if we're gonna retroactively look at this award in the top five and take away Streep for her forgettable role. No! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Work and work till I'm half dead and I hear people saying she's getting old. And what do I get? A daughter who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her as she cares about me. What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Answer me! I buy you beautiful dresses and you treat them like they were some dish rag. You do. $300 dress on a wire hanger. We'll see how many you've got in your hidden some here. We'll see. We'll see. Get out of that bedless. All of this is coming out! 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 We're gonna see how many wire hangers you've got in your closet! All right, so we're gonna stop there then? Yeah, I think. What was that? Three rolls in? Yeah. Okay, so we'll stop there then. In 1981, with Streep's third nomination for the French Lieutenant's Woman, and we'll take that away and give that to Faye Dunaway for her portrayal of Joan Crawford, whether it be factual or not. And we'll pick up there the next time Spro and I go streeping. You want to make her cry? Show her this. I mean, bore you to tears, but your wife will love it. I have set myself beyond the pale. 
I am nothing. I am hardly human anymore. I am the French lieutenant. Oh. You don't like it? No, I think it's good. You believe her? The woman? The actress. Oh, that's Meryl Streep. What? You think she's too what? I think she's too much of what a man thinks a woman is. What he wants her to be. Hey, Spro, you want to hear something interesting? Well, I'll be the judge if it's interesting or not. Well... I guess Obama is on record saying that anybody who ever saw French Lieutenant's woman started crushing on Meryl Streep. Uh, kind of wrong there. Hmm. You want to hear something else interesting? Trump called Meryl Streep one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood. Hmm. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. You want to hear something else interesting? I mean, do you have anything interesting? Oh, I do. We're coming back September 26th. Ooh. We're bringing our friend and fellow podcaster MC of Second Chance Cinema and the Mount Rushmore podcast. And he asked us to look at the Academy Award nominated scripts of 1987. That's right. This motherfucker made me read. And as always, loyal listeners, you can help us out by subscribing to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, rating Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, and reviewing the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And, you know, we would totally appreciate your honest feedback being positive. (laughs) (laughs) If you're an Insta kid, you can follow at Take on the Academy. You'll find updates, plenty of cinema posts to keep you busy in the interim and if you still like emailing you can send those to take on the academy at gmail.com hey bro aren't you curious if biden said anything about street come on well <laughs> not really no that was my biden that was my biden oh, well, <laughs> come on man <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you what i'll look into it and i'll let everybody know september 26th can't wait until then i'm lee and i'm spro and we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are read 